Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with Coach Connor. The ancient Greeks trained by feel. Fast forward almost 2,000 years to 1977, and the heart rate monitor was invented to better quantify training intensity. Modern coaches prescribe training in zones based on percentage values of metrics such as maximal heart rate, and later, once the cycling power meter was invented, in terms of FTP. Those simple recommendations were easily extrapolated to large groups of athletes, giving them critical guidance to their training. Our technology has continued to evolve. Modern training devices and analysis software has given us the ability to understand individual athletes and create custom training recommendations on a per-person basis. So we have to ask, have we outgrown zones? Dr. Andy Coggin and Hunter Allen tackled this question four years ago in episode 72. Today, we're having an updated conversation with two coaches who are part of the data revolution, Neil Henderson of Wahoo Sports Science and Frank Overton of FastCat Coaching. Joining our guests, we'll also hear from coaches Joe Friel on zones and perceived effort, Hunter Allen on the classic zone implementation, Dr. Stacey Sims will address issues women have with zones, and Dr. Inigo Mujica talks with us about where zones still have a role and where they don't. So, find your optimal zone for your listening experience, and let's make you fast. In our newest release of Craft of Coaching with Joe Friel, we explore the art and science of coaching Masters athletes. Thanks to Joe Friel and many other coaches, there are more Masters athletes than ever before, and they're taking on challenges once thought out of reach. Check out the Craft of Coaching Module 11, Coaching Masters Athletes, for guides to help Masters athletes stay fast for years to come. Check out the Craft of Coaching at FastTalkLabs.com. Well, welcome everybody to another episode. This is one of those episodes that I get kind of excited and scared about at the same time, because this is one of those episodes where I actually, as usual, went and looked for a bunch of research. I didn't. Rob did none. So Rob is less scared than I am. And there's very, very little. I could find a ton on training intensity distribution, which is the, are you polarized? Are you high intensity? Are you pyramidal? But research that looks at the various zones and says, here are effective zones, here are ineffective zones, here's why we have these zones, there's actually very, very little of that. So this is really more an let's talk from experience episode. And there's really one question that we're going to try to answer in this show, which is absolutely zones when they were invented served a really important purpose. There was limited ways for coaches and athletes to communicate with one another. We now had heart rate. We now had power. We had to figure out how to use it. And the simplest way was to say, let's break this into zones so that we can say, go out and train in zone two today or train in zone five today. But with the sophistication of the tools now, with the sophistication of the software, with the amount that we can individualize and with the increasingly improving communication between coaches and athletes, or simply athletes be able to look at their own data better themselves. The question here is, do we still need zones? Have, has their purpose been filled and we need to, to move on and prescribe training a different way? So that's the question. I'm not going to give the answer because I'm not sure there is an answer. That's why we're here to discuss it. So with us today, thank you, Frank Overton, for joining us. Thank you for Neil Henderson for joining us. 
I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Definitely. Thanks for having us. Appreciate being here. So, and Frank, sorry you have to join us remote. Frank, unfortunately, came down with a, a slight case of COVID. Yep. Dodged the bullet for three years and then bragged about it last week and then got it. Oh, so, no. Oh, you, you did, did that yourself. yourself. <laughs> yeah. The wife brought it home and then, uh, yeah, I got tested positive Saturday morning. So let's start with what I've already touched on. And I'll throw this to the two of you because I really want to hear your opinion. But what was the historical role of training zones? I mean, you, we could go super way, way, way back, like maybe over 2,500 years and think about some of the earliest prescription of exercise for health, wellness. There's a, you know, a few different things. If you even think of probably like uh, the Hippocrates as the father of medicine, part of his prescription was about exercise and activity. And so there were different ways of describing the kind of exercise, the effort, what we would consider intensity, nowhere near the degree that we can do now with external output or a physiologic response like heart rate or even something like muscle oxygen or, you know, all these other variables. But I think, you know, there's been some way of, of talking about how hard we should be working to elicit appropriate changes or responses that we're looking for that predate a lot of our, you know, newer technologies for sure than the realistic aspect of what we consider zones now did not come into, you know, rigor into the 1900s, mid-1900s really is what I'm more aware of. I think too that we have to consider human nature. There is an infinite number of ways that we can describe intensity, an infinite number of discrete wattages that you could work at. And we love to put things into nice, neat little boxes, tie them up with a cute little bow. It makes our life easier to talk about three training zones or heaven forbid, five or maybe seven training zones if you're getting a little crazy. But that helps, I think, understand and grasp the concept. But I will say that tends to create thinking that is there's a discrete change as we change from one zone to another. But the physiological side of this is really it is that infinite variable continuum that it's existing on. This is a good place to cut in with a comment from Joe Friel pointing out that zones are not magical and perceived effort still has its place. Zones are, are simply just a model is all they are. They are not the end-all and the be-all of training. They're just a model. Models are never perfect. We're never going to come up with a model for how you gauge intensity that's perfect. It's just not going to happen. So we have to come up with something that's imperfect. And we've got this thing now blooming we've called, we call zones. And I see no problem with using it, even though I know it's not perfect. There are lots and lots of problems with it. You know, if we, if we use heart rate zones, well, what happens if you have coffee before the workout? You have too much coffee before the workout. Now, now what happens? You know, what, what do we do? How do we, you know, it gets, after a while it gets really confusing. And, and how do you focus on what you should be doing? When I was a young athlete, now I'm going back to the 1950s and 60s, when I was a young athlete, we had none of these devices. All we had, we didn't have a stopwatch. The coach had the stopwatch. All I had was RPE. I could say, that I, and all we talked about was hard or was easy. That was basically starting point. It was really hard or it was really easy. Or it was kind of in between. It was moderate. And then that became our system of talking about. It wasn't perfect, but we could communicate about how we responded to it. Looking back now, sometimes I think that was actually better 
than what we do right now with all the data we collect on an athlete, not only their their heart rate and their power outputs, but their their pace and their speed and their lactate thresh lactates and you know accumulating the blood and all these things that we're going into anymore. We've kind of gone over the edge, I think, to some extent. And we need to be very cautious with all this stuff. But would I give up using zones because of that? No. It's just a model and it works. Maybe you want to modify it for the athlete based on what you discover about them, how it feels, you know, going back to the, the age-old way of doing this, how it feels, and modify their zones. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with having zones. It's, it's just a model, and we need to get over it and, and relax on this topic. I got to just interrupt here, and I thought you originally said 25,000 years ago. 2,500. <laughs> yeah. So I had this picture of a guy running away from a woolly mammoth with another guy yelling, really, really fast. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, that's the two zone. All and none. Yes. All, all or nothing. <laughs> that's the fight or flight. You don't have to outrun the bear. You have to outrun your friend. Exactly. Yep. Whoever's with you. So, Frank, any thoughts here? I'll just take the polar opposite. And, you know, when uh, heart rate monitors and power meters came along, zones became a way to use those devices to, you know, modulate how hard or easy you should go. And, you know, I think everyone quickly found out there was a lot of modulations and, you know, that's like the seven zone system. And then like zone four, A, B, and C, or, you know, all that came along and we've shifted away from that. And at FastCat and, you know, a lot of coaches, I know we really just kind of gravitate toward just a standard five, six zone system, zones two through seven, and seems to be working pretty well. It's kind of interesting though, as, as you mentioned in the introduction about some of the things of looking at training intensity distribution, even, you know, thinking of like 80, 20, well, that was actually with three zones. And so there is some aspect of where those cut points are what created those delineations of, of one zone or one range to another. I a lot of times do think of zones as ranges anyhow, but, you know, are they anchored based on a physiologic actual, some sort of a change in, in what's happening and how we deliver that energy or how the physiology responds to that? Or is it just some other organization that we're using that splits things out? Like, in a seven zone, like we'll use a lot of times a seven zone with power, but five zone with heart rate because the heart rate can't really reflect some of the higher power zones. And so the heart rate response is not really then quite useful in that same regard. And so thinking about even, you know, in those lower couple zones, there's actually not a lot of physiologic difference between what I would consider on like a six or seven zone, like zone one and two in terms of is there any real change in the physiology? Your heart rate's slightly elevated in both cases, zone one and zone two. Lactate levels are going to be fairly stable in either one of those. You might have a little bit of a shift in substrate utilization, but there's not going to be a lot of any other differences. The muscle oxygen levels, like all these different things, are going to have very minimal difference. And so it's just kind of a trying to often put maybe from zone one to zone two, I think about that as it's one, that zone one, we put a ceiling. So you try to stay below that for active recovery, just to promote speeding of recovery from one session. So the harder days you can go harder in that way. I'm not going to take credit for this idea. We'll put this in the show notes. I can't remember exactly what episode this was, but we had Hunter Allen and Dr. Andy Coggin on the show and we were talking about zones and I'm, I'm paraphrasing them a little bit, but th this was the gist of it. They said, there is nothing magic 
physiologically about the zones. It's not like you, you train right in this zone and you're going to get this magical response. They said zones are a communication tool. It just made it much easier for coaches and athletes to work together and for the coach to give that athlete guidance. And that's more of how you really should be looking at them. Let's hear from Coach Hunter Allen himself from a conversation we had about how zones are just a guide. So tried and true basic zones are good enough for most of us. I think that the classic Coggin power-based training zones or levels are probably good for 80 to 90% of the, of the folks out there. There's a, a 20 to 10 to 20% that need the customized individualized levels or zones. Those are the folks who have larger VO2 maxes or a higher anaerobic capacity than would normally just kind of fit in the, in the classic ones. So absolutely, you need to kind of test yourself. I think that's where you have to test yourself. You've got to see these different ranges. You've got to gather enough data, look at the power duration curve, and, and then see, you know, should I really use individualized zones or not? We need software to do that. And so that's really a great benefit of having software to be able to do that. So that's, that's great, but absolutely. Both things are valid. You got to have both. Some people need them. Some people don't. One thing that's hard, and I think that Neil was talking to this, but I also think it breaks down a little bit on the communication side is what is the zone anchored on, right? We, we can say this traditionally the upper end of zone four right, which is the breakpoint between a Dr. Seiler three zone, zone two and zone three is quote unquote lactate threshold. Yep. Is it or though? Breakpoint or maximal lactate steady state exactly. or LT2 it, or right? ventilatory threshold. And, and, and or... Frank, you know, your lab for a long time, you guys were big. I don't, I'm not sure where you're, where you are now with testing, but you were a big maximal lactate steady state lab. And that number is different than when Neil and I were testing together and we would do four minute stages 20, 25 watts, depending on the athlete. And that's different than when I was testing with Dr. San Milan, who would do five-minute stages until, and then 10-minute stages with a five-minute in the middle. And so this is where I think zones can, in some regard, make communication more difficult because every time I say a zone, I have to quantify what system I'm talking about because zone two is either the Dr. Seiler gray area tempo is bad, or it's exactly where you should be spending all your time because it's the base less than one and a half or less than two millimoles of lactate, right? There's so much nebulous information that I find zones sometimes really confusing. So I wrote an article on identifying your, your threshold and for the purpose of that article, which threshold? So this, this is exactly my point. I kind of decided how many different definitions are there and put the time into researching it and came up with close to 30 different definitions, all of them calculated a different way, all of them giving you slightly different numbers. Then completely confused, I did an interview with Dr. Inigo Solomon and said, so what do you define as threshold? And he just looks at me and goes, there's no such a thing as threshold. And I just threw my hands in the air and went, okay, so forget this article. <laughs> That's a tough one. Yeah. There are packages right now for interpreting lactate curves. So again, let's assume somebody is, is using the right equipment properly and getting good values. Even from that, from that same curve, if you gave it to 
10 people who are trained and have done different types of analysis. So we've all done that to some degree here, but then we put in these different algorithms, these different ways of defining that lactate curve. We're going to get a lot of different answers and it just depends what you're trying to establish with that. So that definition of what are you, you know, what are you talking about at this point is really important. When I've had athletes, I've, oh, I heard I need to do this zone, and I need to do that or can't do this or shouldn't do that. And it's like, okay, let's stop. Who said what, like, what are the reference points? Because I need to know that I can't, I can't give any kind of an informed answer until I have an understanding of how many potential zones are there and what are they using to set those up just discrete points from one test value or something else. And this is something that I've shared previously where everything matters in the system of the person that is prescribing it. Like, I'll say this, I think that Frank, you and I, like our coaching philosophies are different in the whole scheme of things. Yours works really well for you and mine works well for me. But if I took Frank Overton's playbook and I was like, this guy's good at what he does, I'm going to cherry pick some pieces and move it into my system. That athlete is, is screwed, right? There's, it's not going to work for them because what you do works in your system. What I do works in my system. But and Neil, that, I think that that's just a corollary to exactly everything that you're saying. You have to understand what the athlete is talking about. And um, you can't just say, well, that's too hard to do a zone three effort. I don't know what that means. And back to your point. So I just found this when I was researching all these different thresholds and looking into zones, I ended up taking a whole bunch of the different zone models and calculating my zones in each one. And here's what you love. So zone two, USA cycling, my zone two is 114 beats per minute to 126. The Dr. Coggins zones, it's 119 to 143. British Federation, 121 to 140. Here's the one I love, because remember, USA Cycling Zone 2 ended at 126. Norwegian Federation, 140 to 158. Yeah, they Well, that's are. interesting. <laughs> yeah. And I can keep going. So when you say, you know, I'm going out and doing a Zone 2 ride, here's the physiological response I'm going to get. You go, which Zone 2? Because that can be a very, very different ride. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it is wild. I mean, we use a, a few different things. So I do think that heart rate and power output as as kind of two of our more primary ways of, of prescribing our different intensities right now aren't on the same, you know, I don't like zone one is not equal in both zone five is not equal in both because like I said, in, in our heart rate, we use just five zones. And then we have a six and a seven. But the five is not related to the five. Yes. Um, so we use actually different targets and power output in that way. So like your mean maximal power for endurance is going to be related to say an FTP kind of sustained power, threshold power, lots of different names. Again, we could get those 20 or 30 different names to define that point. But even within that, we may have really uh, what zone one recovery, zone two endurance, zone three tempo and zone four threshold all related to that one target. Then as we start to go to the higher levels, we do use a max aerobic power target, more analogous to like a five minute mean maximal power. We then go into an anaerobic capacity, which is closer to a one minute power. But the way we do that in, in our testing method, we do a single session and that one minute power is the very last thing that somebody does. So it's not equal to their fresh one minute power. So an anaerobic capacity workout that I would prescribe based on that value is different 
than somebody if they think, oh, Neil uses a one minute max power, they're going to be actually overshooting because we're probably 10% less than that actual value because there's that fatigue, you know, accumulation of work prior to that effort. And then that neuromuscular power is the absolute kind of peak five second power. But even sprint efforts, in most cases, we might think of those as being some lower percentage, 60, 70% of peak neuromuscular power for 15 second intervals is actually pretty darn hard, where 60 to 70% of FTP is not very hard relative to that FTP. It's quite sustainable for many, many hours and was really. So, I mean, it sounds like we're all saying a pretty similar thing, which was probably the, the key role of zones was to give guidance, to give structure to training. But there's nothing particularly magical about the zone. Saying I'm going out and riding zone two or I'm riding in zone four can mean a whole lot of different things depending on who you're working with and and doesn't in and of itself necessarily mean it's going to be a successful ride. There's more to your workout than that. So the second question that I have for us to discuss here is are zones becoming antiquated with the sort of software we have now with what you can get on the computer that you have on your wrist or on your bike? Do you really need those? And I, I give you an example. I think right now in WKO, you get this amazing power duration curve that shows you your, your strengths and weaknesses, your profile as an athlete. There's a particular version that will show you, it'll tell you, you're weak in this area, you're strong in this area, and you can use that to zero in and saying, it's telling me I'm weak at this kind of one and a half minute in, you know, effort. Yes, you and are. I, well, <laughs> in my case, super weak. <laughs> Amazingly, shockingly weak, but you can get it fine-tuned down that much for you. So does that somewhat antiquate zones? Do we still need them? Well, before the guy who works for a company that is really good at this jumps in, I do want to jump in real quick and say, I think that we're well past the point of establishing one value in our physiology and then trying to derive everything else off of that meaning whether or not you view that as critical power or FTP, that's a totally different argument I don't want to have. Just saying, well, your upper end of your base zone is 70% of that value for everyone. I think that we're past that at this point. I'd agree with that. Yeah. I mean, there's so much we can do with data these days that's above and beyond training zones. But for the sake of zones, it's like the software back then, let's say 20 years ago, it was all shiny and new and we could look at time and zone and, and all that. Now, 20 years later, we can look at the power of big data and optimal training loads. We can look at wearable data and how that balances out with your training stress and training loads and a lot of um, more powerful software analysis tools than just training zones. I think we've all got training zones. We can tell an athlete you know, how hard to go ride and they can go do it and we can see it in the software. And it's, it's as simple as that. Yeah. I think where some of this is going is, you know, looking at that combination of, of the external output as well as the physiologic response. So like your power output is, is just that, you know, external power output. That's the work you're doing. Physiologic response, again, heart rate being that simplest, that thing that we've had most access to for a long time. There are those other, you know, newer tools, you know, muscle oxygen and probably continuous lactate is coming before long. Would I would not be shocked to see that as something that you're going to see on a bike computer as you're riding along and other physiologic response. But there's one other element here 
is what's going on between your ears, what that feels like, that perceived effort, you know, is, is one of those things. And are these things syncing up, matching up is going to be something that's kind of a little bit of an interesting aspect of that. Even, you know, we could probably agree if we think of a, a categoric one to 10 scale on perceived effort that, you know, that break point, whatever we want to call that is probably around a seven out of 10. But if you've ever done a straight hour of power, if you've done an hour on the track, do you think that holding FTP after 30 minutes or 40 minutes is the same seven out of 10 as it was in the, the first two minutes? It might be a, a three out of 10, 15 minutes in, it might be a five out of 10, 30 minutes in, it's seven out of 10, 45 minutes in, you're at 11 out of 10 and 59 minutes, you're at 15 out of 10. I wouldn't effort. know. Never, never been able to make it that far. <laughs> <Yep>. Exactly. <laughs> So basically, like, you know, you look at those different things between your external output, how your body responds to that, a strain, maybe physiologic strain or stress response, and then actually what you're perceiving, you know, an internal strain, I think we often call that from the psychological perspective. And so, you know, FTP threshold, you know, whatever output that is, is some value. Normally, we would say on a one to 10 categoric scale of RPE, that's around a seven. And heart rate under normal circumstances is maybe, you know, 150 beats per minute, but you can have these things that impact heart rate might be temperature, it might be caffeine, it might be stress, anxiety, have a major play impact there, your perceived effort might be in line. But then when you have that opposite where your stress level anxiety is different, or if you sustain that output for nearly an hour, it's not a seven out of 10, 59 minutes into an hour long effort at FTP. I guarantee you that is pretty close to a 10 out of 10, at least in every time I've tried it. <laughs> the message we've been conveying today is that many things can impact zones. So let's hear from Dr. Stacy Sims, who does think zones are antiquated and explain some of the issues female athletes have with them. I personally am not a fan of training zones. I think that we're looking at it and pigeonholing people into specific zones with heart rate and that kind of stuff. There are too many other confounding variables that affect heart rate, that affect breathing rate, and often that's ignored. So if we're looking at sticking with rating of perceived exertion or you have something that's really objective like watt or cadence, then it can be useful. But when we're looking at heart rate training zones, the menstrual cycle definitely changes heart rate and respiration rate. See so an increase in your sympathetic drive in the high hormone phase, so that can definitely affect how those heart rate-based training zones can work. And people are like, should I be training in zone one? And it's like, well, depends. Like, what was your sleep? What's your resting heart rate? What's going on? Because if you're looking at specific numbers for zone one, that actually might be too high. Hey, listeners, this is Trevor Connor, co-host of Fast Talk and CEO of Fast Talk Laboratories. For years, we've been sharing our training, coaching, knowledge, and experience through the Fast Talk podcast. We've been able to connect you with some amazing experts in the endurance sports space like Dr. Steven Seiler, Joe Friel, Dr. Stacey Sims, and Dr. Inugo Salmalan. Help us keep bringing you world-class experts by supporting us through Patreon. Just log on to patreon.com and search for Fast Talk Podcast. Thanks for your support, and of course, thank you for listening. My nephew is about to run a half marathon, and it's his first time ever, and he doesn't know pacing very well. So he told me, yeah, I'm going to start out a little bit easier. And then the second half, I'm just going to kill it. <laughs> and I looked at him and went, if you do it right, here's how it's going to work. You're going to start out with what feels like way too easy and thinking you should be going faster. 
And if you are smart and sustain that and then get halfway through the half marathon and then pick the pace up and kill yourself, you might maintain the same pace. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's going to get harder and harder. You're going to go the same pace. When I was doing a lot of testing, this was something that was difficult to explain. We could have very clear power ranges. We could have very clear heart rate ranges. We could define those as zones. The person would look at it and they'd be like, but riding outside, those numbers, they just don't make sense. And it goes back to a lot of what Neil was just talking about. You take a slightly higher heart rate average maybe because the terrain is undulating. You're not riding a perfect orgometer. You get some dehydration. You get some uh, radiant heat stress. All of these things are going to be affecting up or down. And I think that this is, if somebody is still working with zones, this is a very important point that, Neil, you know, you taught to me. It's not about being at the perfect upper end of that zone. If your base zone goes to 225 watts, perfect training is not 224. It's some measured back down within that because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if that's exactly the break point in the continuum or not. And chances are, if you're riding the line, you're actually riding over the line. Frank, you looked like you you had like a big like, oh, moment in there. So I was like, did Frank agree with me or is he like going to come in like the, you know, hammer of God now? <laughs> no, no. I love what you just said. We actually tell athletes, we have them go out and, and do rides where they're not training by zones. We're like, all right, go out and ride and train all zones. And then I can give you a couple of examples. So like we have like a, like we can give them a workload. We say go out and ride this much, whether it's kilojoules, TSS, OTS. And technically it's zones two, three, sweet spot, and then sub threshold. So it's not as hard as you can go. It's gonna last two to five hours, maybe six. And yeah, we don't even mess with training zones. On the other hand, we have rods where we're like, now we want you to go out and ride for two hours, but we do want you to go as hard as you can up the hills. And so now they're incorporating zone four and zone five and anaerobic work into this ride. So it's like, I'm sure you've all seen the kitchen sink ride, you know, and it's got like a little bit of zone six, one minuteers, and then some, maybe like two by three, some VO2, and then it's got some threshold and those are great, but we definitely tell athletes, this is an unstructured ride. And you're riding it by feel, but you're recording the data and we're going to, you know, bring that into the software. We're not going to really look at time and zones, but you're going to get in some great training. And so, Rob, I was just kind of agreeing with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I think you're actually, Frank, raising an interesting point, right, where because we're discussing the larger concept of zones being important in training, And in some regard, I think that riding at particular intensities to hopefully elicit a particular adaptive response, that's probably good training. But at the same time, we all know that just going out and racing also has a big improvement in our fitness and our Mm -hmm. performance. And Frank, in a lot of regard, that's exactly what you're describing here, right? Because in racing, you're going to go with the attack. You're going to go with the pace of the peloton up that hill or you know, you're racing your mountain bike, you don't have a choice, you got to go all in just to make it up this climb. So it, it's actually is really interesting how you're using that in your training that that's your prescription is is to go by feel to go by what the terrain dictates, to go out and have fun and engage with the activity that you're doing. 
Yeah. And, and bear in mind, that's not like five days a week. I mean, you mix it up with, you know, like you, some days you're doing structure where you are maybe uh, emphasizing a particular zone. And then other days it's maybe this unstructured work. And what's nice for athletes is they get that on their training plan and they're like, okay, I'm going to join this group ride and it's fun and it's flexible. And, and then when they see the structured workout, they're like, well, coach maybe knew that I didn't have a group ride to go to that day. And that's my one day I like to really be efficient and jam it out on the, on the smart trainer and get in my specific work in a time efficient manner. And, and so we just kind of blend both together. Um, I'm sure like a lot of folks do. Yeah, definitely. I think it comes down to having purpose and and what you're doing for any given training session. So like when us as coaches, when we're prescribing, where we're laying out training, there's absolutely elements where we have that structured workout that has very, very specific purpose um, in whatever way, whether it's like getting ready for a specific event or trying to address a certain kind of physiologic response that we want to stress at that point. Any of those different ways, that purpose and that structured workout is there the unstructured side of sometimes just accumulate, you know, a distance, a time, a volume, a, you know, maybe have a ceiling to stay below X heart rate or have a basement of stay above X, you know, Y power. These different ways that are somewhat unstructured, but still guided with purpose uh, is part of it. The worst thing that potentially if you're just all over the place and have absolutely no idea of like, are you doing a little bit more training? Are you able to do less? Is if you have absolutely no purpose, no structure ever, and just randomly hitting, you know, whatever comes your way. Riding every group ride, especially the groups that are faster than you, if you do that all the time, most cases you may learn to tolerate things, but you're not really actually addressing things that'll help you be a better athlete. I'm a little disappointed you didn't cut in there with, hey, FTFP. <laughs> well, I have my stickers over here. FTFP is about developing good training habits, as you know. Uh, and it's nice to, for us coaches to be able to design a training plan, explain it, and then uh, have athletes go off and do it. But you got to, it's got, you know, training's got to be flexible and also even the best thought out training plans need to be flexible with how the athlete is recovering. And if they're, you know, not recovering, like you would expect, the training plan should adapt uh, accordingly. And one point I was going to make about zones. And one thing that we have been doing lately is because we were, we we're kind of touching on all the different, like Trevor, you were talking about all the different ways we design zones. One thing we tell athletes, we've been trying to keep it super duper simple lately. And We try to get away from FTP this and all the other things. We talk about going as hard as you can and then not going as hard as you can and and having them use their their power meters or their heart rate monitors to do either or. And so we tell athletes like zone four, five, and six, hard as you can. And then zones two, three, and sweet spot, not as hard as you can. Use your power meters or heart rate monitors accordingly. And of course, you have to, you know, coach them on what that actually means. You, you don't want to go do the first one minute interval as hard as you can and crater on the next ones. And so there's a, some coaching and, you know, some data analysis w- within that. But it, when you do uh, explain it to an athlete that's new to training, hard as you can, can not as hard as you can, they get it. And um, it's sometimes it's fun to have them kind of train that way. 
Yeah, I'm very similar. If I prescribe a one minute, it's one minute as hard as you can, but you're doing six of them and they all have to be the same intensity. So Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think that that's a big takeaway too, even just from doing um, all the lactate testing that I've done in the past is that information I found to be very valuable for defining a base zone, a tempo zone, maybe even a sub-threshold zone. But once we got above threshold, LT2, whatever you want to call it, lactate was sort of out the window for me. And it was very much just about effort and ability at that point. But something that I wanted to bring up that I think, Frank, you were alluding to, and then Neil, you as well, the purpose of why you're doing and then the infinite number of possibilities that you need to be um, considering when we're talking about prescribing workouts. And this is an area that I'm in right now with um, Melissa, my wife, where uh, she was injured last year. She has not raced in a long time. I'm writing workouts and I'm including some things like pace or heart rate in there. But in all honesty, I, I don't know if that's the right pace or not for her. The weather's bad. She's on the treadmill. And so I'm providing very clear descriptors of how it should feel, what it's equivalent to, what the purpose is, what we're trying to achieve. And I say, this is more important. If you're not running exactly 545 miles, that's okay. That's secondary to all of these other pieces. I'm putting the zone second in the overall purpose of why she's doing that workout today. This is a good place to hear from Joe Friel again, who talks about the importance of learning the feel of a particular wattage or zone. One of the things I used to do with athletes when we, we get, you know, you get a device on your handlebars, it's got your power and it's showing your heart rate and your speed and all this data up there is I was occasionally assigned a workout to an athlete and I would tell them, I want you to put your power meter in your back pocket or put a piece of tape over it. I don't want you to look at the entire workout, but I want you to do the workout as we do, as I described it. It may be intervals. It may be a tempo sort of thing. It could be a race-type effort. It could be lots of things we're doing here. And then we get all done. I want to be able to take the data and compare it with what you were experiencing. That's a great thing to understand is how does it feel when the athlete is at this power or this heart rate or this speed or whatever it may be, this pace, how does it feel to them? That's a great place to go back to, and the, it forces the athlete to – to go in to think about their training as opposed to going out and looking at something on their handlebars or on their wrist. They've got something here which is now internal. And that that is really the most important thing is what's going on within that athlete and how they feel about it. That's the most critical thing. So sometimes if we can remove the data and but still compare it later on, as I've done with my athletes over the years, is compare the data with their perceptions it provides great information, great feedback for me as a coach, and also great feedback for the athlete. So there's so many things we can do with all this data, but we, I'm afraid, have become too focused on the data. So I'm going to flip this question around. I started with the question of, are zones antiquated? And throw a question out to you that I think you guys have started to answer, which is, where do you still use zones now? Is there a place where you say, these are still really valuable. I still like giving my athlete zones. I still like prescribing by this. I would say probably at this point, the way I look at zones is more just in the analysis afterwards was, you know, did they follow what was uh, prescribed in that way? 
Were they able to accomplish what was what the goal of that was? Did they stay about at the right range? And and again, that sometimes is going to have to be a cross range check of, okay, the power was here, but the heart rate was there. Okay, the heart rate was in the range, even though the power today was a little bit low. So what, maybe what was going on, and that can lead to a little bit of uh, that discussion of like, do we need to make any further adjustments in upcoming sessions for them based on how they responded to that? So you know, if people are blindly following the output exclusively and then they ignore their physiology, that's where I find a lot of athletes get into trouble. They've had these targets set and, you know, it's really nice now on, on a computer to have those goals shown there, but they don't show the flexibility as much like the way we've we've implemented that with our Wahoo computers now, you know, with the workouts that sync, they do have a power target, but it's actually a range a little bit lower and a little bit higher because we do know that a some people can produce a little more power outdoors for that same effort. Actually, some people can produce a little bit less because the variability is greater any given day, you have a little bit of a plus and minus. And so kind of building that little bit of tolerance is helpful rather than, you know, must be 300 watts. And if you're at 299, you're getting like bad message, like, or you're not hitting the goal. So having a little bit bigger range is kind of helpful in in some aspect there. Neil, this might be giving away the secret sauce, but you know, in your experience, if I'm going out and I'm, I'm doing, I'm just going to say a, a, a sub-threshold workout, I'm going to do some long climbing intervals. And, uh, you know, my power, spot on, it's right in range, but my heart rate, it's a little bit high, or maybe my heart rate's a little bit low. How do you expect athletes to adjust? Do you say, my heart rate is a little too high, my, but my power is good, I feel good? Do you say, oh, no, 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 you're exceeding a zone with one of your metrics, you better pull it down, even though your workload maybe isn't quite as high as it could be. Yeah, I use more the the two out of three. So that perceived effort in conjunction with the external output and the response. So if your perceived effort, it feels like, you know, the appropriate effort that was prescribed and the power is there, but the heart rate's high, just keep an eye on that. If you have the opposite where your heart rate is high and your perceived effort is high, but the power is off, then it's okay now back off the the effort to keep two out of three in line. Three out of three is ideal, but two out of three is better. One out of three is typically you're ignoring something that you should have paid attention to. Two out of three ain't bad. What Neil was talking about with like not a set number, but a range, it kind of reminds me of the discussion that we have all the time of to erg or not to erg. And this gets me to the thing that the way we advocate zone four, five, and six intervals. And the reason why I like as hard as you can go, because the athlete self-adjusts to their current state of fitness and recovery. And if they're tired, they're still going as hard as they can go. If they're on a great day, they're not going to let a range limit what they can achieve in training. And therefore they get more stimulus out of the workout. And then this also kind of negates the need to test so frequently because the data can just say, oh, you're, you know, hey, you're knocking it out of the park and your threshold's probably increased. Great. We don't know what it is, but it's probably gone up. And we can just tell because your VO2 max intervals are averaging much higher than they were a couple months ago. But the whole erg mode thing It's kind of funny because we always tell athletes, please turn it off, especially when you're doing your as hard as you can intervals. It's wonderful for your sub-threshold intervals 
where you do want to kind of, you know, keep it in, in check. And so the one thing I was going to say back to Trevor's question, as hard as you can, I love zone four, five, and six intervals, set times, hard as you can go. But for the aerobic work, when they're building, we tend to prescribe zones two through sweet spot, 56 to 97%, and let them hit all of that in a ride. And I guess you could say it's a zone, it's a range, it's a wide range, it's all aerobic and it's fun. Generally, athletes will get tired while they're doing that and they'll slow down so they can self-govern themselves, but they can generate large training loads and get a great workout or great build workout out of that way. So me personally, I was actually surprised to realize this is about a year ago when I started looking at my athletes' training plans, I had stopped using zones in the prescription. I used to. Now, whenever I write up a workout description, I'm like, here's what it should feel like. Here's how you should execute it. And I'll tell them, I, I want you to be in, in this power range or this heart rate range, but I'll, I'll come up with that number. I don't necessarily look at the, the zones. And I actually asked myself, so why am I still worried about zones if I'm not really using them for prescription? And Neil, I'm the same as you. It, it's more in the analysis. And actually some of my favorite charts, um, I use WKO for my analysis, are the ones where you color code the zones. Because an athlete can do a, a workout where you, can, you have two workouts that are the same average power. So let's say I'm having them go out and do a long base miles ride, you know, really good executed base mile ride. It's just going to be green the whole way across where somebody else can average the same thing, but it's red and yellow and green and blue. It's just all over the map and averages out the same, but it'll going to go that that was not the same workout. That's not going to be the same response. Yeah. And that goes to like way back. I mean, we would have athletes that we'd be like, okay, we want you to do an endurance ride. And they may have had summary data. Oh, my average power was 140. And like, you know, okay, that's right in the middle of the range. And then you actually look at what they did and be like, you literally spent zero time anywhere between 120 and 160. You were way below and way, way above. above. Half the you, time was 180, half the time exactly. was 100. It you, averages at a 140. Exactly. I was like, <laughs> you did zero of the work, in fact. You think on average you did, but in fact, you in reality, you did 0% of the workout at the right range, even though the average says you did. You didn't. It's actually what did you do, but again... That's, that's years and years ago before everyone else had the analysis software and that ability to actually see what was done. Finally, let's hear from Dr. Inigo Majika, who still uses zones with new athletes, but takes a different approach with elites. I think that general training zones is something that we can only apply if we are dealing with low-level athletes or moderately trained athletes, and we have to cater for dozens of clients simultaneously. When we are working with highly trained or elite athletes, we absolutely need to individualize those training zones and we need to update those training zones because they are going to be changing throughout the season. So I think when we deal with that type uh, of athlete, it has to be absolutely individual. How do you individualize it? Is, is testing required or do you have techniques, particularly if the athlete's off racing somewhere and you can't get them into the lab? Testing is required in my view. So shall we move on to the final question for this? Or this is kind of a two-parter. But uh, you know, I, I think we've already started to touch on this. Are there better approaches now than using zones? 
Yeah, I think that this is a great time to ask about. Frank, you threw out a term earlier that I wasn't very familiar with, and so I'm sure the listeners aren't, and that's OTS. And and I think that that's going to get to the future, Trevor, question that you're asking here. So, Frank, what the heck is OTS? OTS is optimized training stress. It is a power-based and heart rate-based metric that calculates the workload that the athlete does, their, their, the stress, and it's a duration times intensity metric. It takes TSS in training peaks and improves it three ways. So number one, it's an exponentially weighted moving average. It's not based on normalized power. Number two, you don't get credit for coasting. So when you go climb left hand, canyon and you descend for 20 minutes, you're not racking up TSS or OTS, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and the third thing, which is in development that we're working on two more things. So like when you do a five hour ride, you know, the first hour, two hours feels different than the fourth and the fifth hour, just like Neil was talking about this, you know, RPE of seven you know, for going as hard as you can. But when you do that for 60 minutes, the end of the 60 minutes is a 10 out of 10 every single time. So I think we've all done the four and the five hour rides and the stress in that fourth and the fifth hour are much greater than the stress in the the first first hour. And so OTS takes that into account. The final improvement is carbohydrate consumption. So if the athlete does a nice job of fueling their ride, they uh, minimize their stress. And then if they don't fuel enough, there's more stress incurred on the body. And so that's a a little bit tougher nut to crack that's coming down the software development path. But for now, OTS is a way that we prescribe training for workloads. And we say, go out and do a 125 OTS ride. So zones two through sweet spot. And it's a set amount of work. And then the way that I describe that is when you get sick or you go to the doctor, the doctor prescribes you medicine, says take five milligrams of this per day. Then we can do that with training. We can prescribe set amount of workloads per day. That's like the goal of their training. So go do a 200 OTS or 300. And we know from analyzing power data from certain races, like, you know, unbound, that's a 600, 500, 700 OTS day. It's a gigantic day. But if you're just doing like the Boulder Bay road race, that might be like a 200. And so you can tailor training based on the workload. They can ride in all zones, mix it all up into one. And yeah, that's, that's what optimized training stress is. Really glad to hear you take that approach. We've heard from Dr. Seiler multiple times, his criticism of TSS, which is exactly that. If you go out and do a five-hour ride, and it's the same power all the way across, the TSS score is going to be the same for the final hour as it was for the first hour. But the stress in your body is completely different in that fifth hour. I also think, Frank, the fact that you brought up the carbohydrate side of things, because when you were on your fourth point, I think about how hour three or whatever feels different than hour one, the thought that I had in my head was right now I'm practicing shoving as many carbohydrates in my body as I possibly can as I get ready for this Trans-Portugal race. And my thought that I had in my head was it's actually so much easier in hour three when I'm consuming a lot of carbohydrate than when I'm not. And you immediately went to carbohydrates being a factor in this. So I think that that's really insightful uh, that you guys are already looking at that. Yeah, the science is there and the the challenge is 
getting the athlete to report uh, an accurate amount of carbohydrate that has been taken in. Um, this is actually a cool thing with uh, CGMs. You, know, you can bring in that data and then you don't have to worry about the athlete forgetting how many gels they had. So there's a lot of things to, to work out and everything, but I think we're, we're at least thinking about it. And then the thing I like about carbohydrate reporting, it gets athletes to really be more aware of their carbohydrate consumption and it, it can help them, uh, can help the technology teach athletes, hey, you do need to eat. We, we're talking 60 to 100 grams of carbohydrate per hour, not 20, not 30. And then it shows them the the additional stress they had when they don't eat enough. We have this <laughs> amazing picture of Rob where he was out for a long ride and completely bonked no, it wasn't out of a his long mind. Ride. Trevor, well, you, I was an hour and a half into that well, ride, Trevor. Trying to be nice. <laughs> Bonks out of his mind, finds this little stand on the side of the road selling honey. Yeah, man, you know that honey stand? You guys have definitely so ridden by it. I forget what crossroads it's on, but yeah. And we have this picture of Rob holding this jar of honey, honey dripping off of his face, the biggest smile I've ever seen on his face. Yeah. Joy. I rode down Neva Road just like dipping my hand into this honey and like eating it off my fingers. It was amazing. So Neil, I'll throw this to you because that was a great answer from Frank. Any thoughts that you have on are there better approaches to from, from zones from now? From zones, for sure. There, there's a few things. I think number one is rather than looking at a singular data type point, whether it is a heart rate response or power output, it's really the interrelationships there. We don't have a psychometer yet, right? In terms of being able to directly feed in what our feelings are into these devices. But you know, that that integration with a future psychometer, I think would be a really nice uh, way of getting those three three different uh, ways of, of assessing that stress uh, in the future future, I guess, uh, for that side of things. One other area that we're doing actually a little bit more work on um, is actually even in that external output, it's it's a net product, right, of, of torque and cadence. And so when we start to look at training response, you know, for even for a, a similar power, if you are varying that cadence to a significant degree, either low with high torque or high cadence with low torque, you can stimulate different types of stimulus. You're, you can uh, generate a different kind of stimulus for the same output, or you can also vary the power output in addition to that cadence and have, you know, that torque profile uh, or cadence profile basically being aspects of being able to create an even more individualized, specific training stress that you can then quantify with, with those additional variables. Pull out the constituent components. It's funny, you know, sometimes people say something and it just makes me go like, huh, interesting, <laughs> yeah, which so, is literally what I just did. Yeah. So, so pool, if you do have a Wahoo Bolt computer, you, you can look at your like, you know, your current torque, you can look at lap torque. So I did a series, you know, I did a normal workout and then at the end of it, I did four one minute intervals where I was just looking at the torque. So I knew what I did in the first portion of the workout. My intervals were around 35 Newton meters torque for those little bit longer intervals, I said, okay, I want to try to do a little bit progressive torque. I didn't look at the power, but I looked at torque. And so I tried to do 40, 45, 50 Newton meters um, and see if I could hold that. And I think I may have even done the 55 and the last one, just increasing that. Yes, the power was higher. You know, I, I was varying the cadence a little bit, but it gave me a different way of thinking about that workout and accomplishing the work in a different way that I knew was going to stimulate that 
kind of a, a stress, which interestingly, you know, some of the torque went to on some of those what we'd consider like near FTP efforts, but at a low cadence, you know, kind of typical high torque efforts often are pretty close to the actual torque that is sustained then during like max aerobic power type of a effort and intensity. So, you know, I think there's some interesting aspects there that you can, again, just play with and make the specificity of those different sessions, you know, very, very targeted. And this is an area where that reductionist thinking of zones making it as simple as we possibly can so that we can really wrap our mind around it ultimately is doing us a disservice because we'll say, hey, your your power zone and we'll limit it just to power is between this and this range. Every single person knows that the body responds differently to say 200 watts at 60 RPM, 200 watts at 120. Exactly. (laughs) Your heart rate is different. Your um, respiratory rate is different. Metabolically, it's different because your gross efficiency is different. The muscle recruitment, we talk about muscle recruitment and motor units all the time. That recruitment is different. It's interesting that you're thinking that deeply about it. Hey listeners, this is Ryan Kohler, coach, physiologist, and owner of Rocky Mountain Devo. Whether you're a competitive athlete or a fitness-focused individual, Rocky Mountain Devo has a place for you. We provide coaching, nutrition, lactate and metabolic testing, and training plan guidance so that you can get to where you want to be. Check us out today at RockyMountainDevo.com. So one final question to throw at all of you, and this is the, the hopeful side. Think about the future. Get excited. Where do you think the future of workout prescription is going? Where would you like to see it go? And who wants to, yeah, to dive I'll, on this one I'll, first? I'll I mean, I think that future is that multivariate, that there's there's multiple levels associated in a prescription that you can't, that there is then an adjustment based on how you're responding on the day. Um, so based on the output and your heart rate response that you may have that floating target being adjusted for a given workout target or based on the output you have in your first couple efforts that it may adjust upcoming efforts in that way, that there is kind of that utilizing uh, your individual previous results and, and capacity to then adjust on the fly what you're doing now from multiple different angles rather than just one single, that multivariate power, heart rate, or muscle oxygen, or all these other things and perceived effort. Get that psychometer in there. <laughs> you got to like plug that into your ear. How does that work? I, I, well, probably. Yeah. <laughs> Frank, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, we're already getting away or, you know, when I say we, I say the coaching community is getting away from just training zones exclusively. And, you know, one of the things that we think about is like, okay, go out and ride an hour and a half today, and then maybe try to achieve 10 hours of riding this week. And then in the next three months, let's get your training load from here to here. So we're really thinking about bigger picture prescriptions that aren't necessarily zone-based three by 10. While those are good, those fit into the bigger piece of the the puzzle. And so the other thing that I think uh, you'll see in the future is gamification of data and where like a a Zwift or like a level 50 and level 60, I mean, that's fun. I mean, athletes really respond to having a target and and maybe it's not, maybe it's a little more physiologically specific than whatever 25, 55, 60 is, but bringing training load and 
down into the gamification and, you know, the, the bigger picture using the data, you just having athletes go out and ride, you know, be consistent, make it fun, make it flexible, getting maybe a little bit further away from just the, the FTFPing. We've harped on FTFPing so hard for the past five years. And we've, we have so many use cases where it, it just doesn't apply anymore. So maybe it's like, well, let's come at this the other way and, and, and look at the, the bigger picture. Real quick, Frank, can you, for listeners, define what FTFP is? Can we curse on this show? <laughs> we can beep it. We can beep okay. it. I just want to hear you say it. FTFP is follow the plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It just kind of, it got started five years ago when athletes would say, oh, you know, I missed my workout last night. What should I do? And after you answer that question six or seven times, then you come up with a more curt response of like, <laughs> well, follow the plan. And then we realized it was really just about athletes developing uh, good training habits. And that's what successful athletes bring to the, the training plan. It doesn't need to be you're a pro or you're, you know, it is any athlete of all abilities. It's your mindset, it's your, your habits. Do you have your, do you have your act together? You, can you organize your day and time management? And can you commit, you know, to carving out 75 minutes a day, that sort of thing. So that's what FTFP became. You know, I listened to two episodes of your show with you talking about FTFP and I was sitting there going, is there a new alternative to FTP I haven't heard of? What is this? <laughs> Until finally the third episode, you defined it. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. Well, well, for me to follow the plan, I'm going to have to continue wrapping this up because I got to ride after this, guys. And, yep. uh, you know, Trevor, for me, the future is we have been trying to take external measures and have them define internal physiological events. Yeah. And I think especially for aerobic, longer duration, sustainable sort of workloads when we're monitoring that, I think that something like, uh, Neil, you mentioned before, continuous lactate monitor, we have to be close to the technology that allows us to understand what's happening in relative real time to the biomarkers inside of us. And I would love to go out and, and do a ride where I was keeping my lactate between 1.2 and 1.5 millimole. I know that that comes with its own set of problems, right? There is complexity there without question. And I would love to go out and do long climbing intervals at 3.8 millimoles of lactate and then take my external power meter and correlate that and say, hey, I did more work for the same lactate level. Now we're going a step deeper than I did the more work for the same heart rate level, so to say. I think that that's the future. I think in the next three to five years, you'll be able to just put one on and stick it on the tricep. Yep. Glucose, lactate, power, hydration, who knows what else? Yeah. All the data. I'm going to go a slightly different direction just to be a, a, a little bit of the old school curmudgeon. Sort of and sort of no. Oh. So I still think to the end of time, one of the most important things for an athlete is to learn the feel, is to learn the feel of a steady ride, to learn the feel of the different types of intervals and to really understand when their body is functioning well, when their body isn't functioning well, to understand how different intensities should feel 
And I don't think anything on your wrist or on your handlebars can, can replace that if you don't have the feel. So I think that's really important. What I see the future as is increasingly sophisticated analysis of the rides to say, here's what you did well, here's what you didn't do well to help you learn that feel. So you can look at it and go, oh, well, I was feeling this and it's telling me that about that moment in the ride. Hmm, that's interesting and, and can help you the next time you do it improve what you're doing. Kind of like a biofeedback sort of situation right. so that you can, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think ultimately, I mean, it's more feedback rather than data or, you know, just a ser- like lots of different numbers. So making sense of, of all the bits of information that we can put together to truly be able to then change uh, your behaviors, actions, et cetera, and adapt, adjust in that adapt. way. Adapt. Who needs to adapt? Neil? God, it's overrated. <laughs> Failure to adapt is fatal. Is adapting <laughs> to fail? Maybe. Let's see if failure to adapt is adapting to fail. There you go. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Tweet at us with at Fast Talk Labs or join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com. Learn from our experts at FastTalkLabs.com or keep us independent by supporting us on Patreon. For Neil Henderson, Frank Overton, Joe Friel, Dr. Stacey Sims, Hunter Allen, Dr. Inigo Muika, and Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.